1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. I feel the best message you can give a teenager and maybe even an older child is that I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have tons of practice doing that before, I, before you're legally able to make your own decision and before I send you off to college.
0: You're listening to Dr. William Stix on Psychologists Off The Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie
2: Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health.
0: Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off The Clock. Hi there, this is Diana, and I know that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably really value psychological health as well as overall wellness. And I also know how hard it is to carve out the time to take care of yourself in this area. And that's why I've paired up with Goodland Organics Coffee Farm up in Goleta, California to offer you a day-long retreat into total wellness. We're going to, upon arrival, have specialty organic coffee that's grown right there and on the farm and juices. We're going to have an open-air yoga session. I'm going to be offering some workshops in psychological flexibility and self-compassion. And we're going to have some time to connect with nature and then close our day with some sound healing. We're also going to have a beautiful plant-based organic lunch uh, by a a personal chef. So I really hope that you can find the time, carve it out, sign up for this retreat. And it's going to be just a way to remember what matters. And if you are an off-the-clock listener, you can save... Uh, big. So enter in off the clock to get a discount. And also we're having early registration until March 1st, where you'll save $50 on the retreat if you sign up before March 1st. So it's going to fill up, but go ahead and sign up at drdianahill.com. That's D-R-D-I-A-N-A-H-I-L-L.com. Hope to see you all there. Today, we are launching into a fantastic episode with Dr. William Stixfred. He is a neuropsychologist that specializes in kids. And specifically, he has this whole philosophy around helping kids become better managers of their own lives. And if you have gotten into power struggles with your kid, if you're wondering what to do about technology, if you are fighting about homework or just worried about how do I get my kid ready to go off to college, this is the episode for you because he has some great strategies that are just going to give you a sense of relief and I think empowerment as a parent to help empower your kid to take control of their lives and set them off in a good direction. What did you think about it, Debbie?
2: Okay, Diana, I, it's, I feel like it should be a must listen, like a required podcast for everyone who has children. Yeah. I just, it's so helpful to think about it this way. I listened to it a few weeks ago and when you first recorded it and I have been putting it into practice.
0: Yeah. You know, it's so what hard. Been doing? Yeah. And
2: so it's hard sometimes because I, in some ways, sometimes it's easier to tell our children what to do, to do things for them. Mm-hmm. It's just faster sometimes mm-hmm. and easier. Um, and yet, I first of all, it does set up this power struggle. Sometimes I feel like my kids aren't even listening to me because I repeat the same instructions over and over again. And I mean, our children, they love to be empowered. It doesn't matter what age. They want to make decisions. They want to have this sense of mastery and autonomy. So, you know, I've been really trying it out with my kiddos. And one of the um, sayings that he has in the episode is to say to your child, it's your call. About mm-hmm. mis- decisions that they're capable of making. And so I've been saying it's your call about things a lot around here. My kids love it to the point where, you know, it was a cold day here in Denver and I told my daughter, you know, it's cold outside. You better put on some warmer clothes. You know what she said? Hmm. My call, mommy. <laughs> so she's adopted it too. And she's, I think, getting more sense of being able to make her own decisions and she loves it. And it's really been helpful, I think, for our parent child dynamic
0: right and when you're saying it's your call you're also empowering the child to have the belief that they actually can figure some of this stuff out and it i think that giving that that messaging to to our children as opposed to the messaging of i'm going to control this for you because you don't know what you're doing it it changes and it shifts the whole dynamic and it actually it actually asks the child to step up to the plate and think about it and try things out. And did that work or did it not work when I wore my snow pants? And it, I think it really shifts the whole power struggle. It
2: does. And it also gives them the sense of capability, which has the side benefit of them starting to take it upon themselves to do more chores around the house, I'm mm-hmm. finding. Yeah. Because they're like, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, how great is that? As a Right.
0: And they're way more resourceful than we give them credit for. We just have to step back. I think for me, it's also letting go a little bit of the perfectionism of the outcome, letting it be a little bit, you know, not exactly the way I would do it. And that's in part because they're figuring it out and they're learning. And part of learning is that there's mistakes. A good friend of mine is actually a music teacher. And there were people that uh, were complaining in the halls about her music class. If you ever walked past a music class, it's like, pretty Hi. terrible. <laughs> and, and she went out there and she said to them, what? You don't like the sound of learning? Aww, and that's I what the that. sound of learning is, right? It's messy and, and kind of hard, hard on the ears sometimes, but it, it's in the direction that we want it, our children to be going is to learning how to be more independent.
2: Well, we hope you enjoy this fantastic episode.
0: William R. Stixred is a clinical neuropsychologist and founder of the Stixred Group, a lifespan neuropsychology practice. He is also a member of the faculty at Children's National Medical Center, and he is an assistant professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the George Washington School of Medicine. Additionally, Dr. Stixred is a frequent lecturer, the author of scientific articles and book chapters on transcendental meditation and other topics. Most recently, he is the author with co-writer Ned Johnson on the self-driven child, the science and sense of giving your kids more control over their lives. Dr. Sixred has been quoted in publications including the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Times of London, Scientific American, Time.com, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, Barron's Business Week, and Vogue. He is also a rock and roll musician and plays in the band Close Enough. Welcome, Dr. Sixred. It's wonderful to have you on the show.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks.
0: I'm really excited to have you here. My, actually, the way I found out about you was my husband was listening to your NPR on point oh, interview. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he called me up and said, you've got to get, you get this guy's book. He's who you need because of my work with college students, but also who yeah. we need as parents as a guide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're definitely on the same page with all of your work. So thank you. It's just a great honor to have you on. Pleased to be here. Yeah. So I'd love to start with with your book, The Self-Driven Child, and it's all about helping kids find their inner drive so they can flourish. You write about sort of the key process of giving kids a sense of control and as parents being more of a consultant than a manager. Can you talk a bit about that concept?
1: Sure. Sure. Um- my uh, co-writer Ned johnson and i have been lecturing together for some years often about uh, motivation often about how stress and sleep deprivation affects kids lives and when we decided to write a book we tried to figure out how do we organize the most useful content the most useful things that we recommend to parents and educators and we realized we we could organize everything around this construct of a sense of control Mm -hmm. and we knew that, that from the stress research, that the, a low sense of control is the most stressful thing in the universe. I mean, if something's happening to you or your kid, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's highly stressful. And so many people describe contemporary teenagers and college students as experiencing a very low sense of control, which parallels with, with the, the epidemic of, of anxiety and depression in, in adolescents and young adults. And so we thought from a mental health point of view, the sense of control is a really big deal. And then also we knew that everywhere we looked in terms of how do kids become self-motivated, all the arrows pointed to autonomy, whether it was Carol Dweck's growth mindset, which is basically I can through my own effort, a sense of control, whether it was self-determination theory that emphasizes the importance of autonomy for the development of self-motivation or flow theory, all the arrows pointed to autonomy. We figured if this is really so important for the development of high stress tolerance, mental health, and self-motivation, it must be a really big deal. So we we pulled together all the ideas we could think of about how do we support in in young people this development of a healthy sense of control. And we think, Diana, of two dimensions of the sense of control. One is a sense of agency or autonomy. The other is being in a brain state where you feel a sense of control, namely when, when you're in your right mind, you're goal-directed, you're focused, you're working on stuff, but you aren't overly tired and stressed. And from a brain point of view, when your prefrontal cortex is regulating the amygdala, that, that's the state that we want young know, people to be in most of the time, because that, that, that's, that's the brain state that represents a sense of control.
0: What's really hard as a parent is... That in order to give our kids more of a sense of control, we have to let go of some control. <laughs> and That's right. A lot of a lot of parents, uh, I think, would struggle, and and I certainly do struggle with uh, giving my kids more control over some things that maybe they're almost ready for, but not quite ready for. And you you talk about that that acts that actually is part of the brain development process where they they do the learning through practicing and making these mistakes.
1: Right, right, and and we we don't want kids to have to be in charge of things they aren't developmentally ready for. I mean, there's yeah. nothing more stressful and, and, and harmful to development than, than, than making kids feel they're responsible for stuff. They aren't developmentally, re, developmentally ready to handle. Yeah. However, we think that, that we're possible. I mean, we, we like the parenting adage, don't do it for a kid what a kid can do for himself. And also, we, we like the idea of let's not solve problems for kids that they could solve themselves. And so it, there's no question. It's hard, and it's hard because it, it, if we, we give up control for kids, we've experienced a low sense of control, which and we're, it's so stressful. I just consulted with a mom the other day who about her kid, and she just cannot stop worrying about it. She cannot stop thinking. I know it's best for him. He should be doing this. He should be doing this. It, it, it's hard, and and one of the ways that we deal with our own low sense of control is trying to manage our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's hard, but it's so in the long run, it's so much easier than thinking that somehow we're supposed to be able to make our kids turn on a certain light or make make them do things, which is impossible.
0: Right. There's I think a sense of relief as a parent when you get that that it's not your responsibility to solve your children's problems, you, you say it's not your, your responsibility to solve your children's problems, but to help them learn to run their lives. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love that. And, that. and that this concept that you write about of if you're spending 95% of your energy trying to solve their problems, and they're only going to spend 5%, I see that in my household all the time, I'm running around trying to get them to get to school on time. And they're loafing around, you know, twiddling their thumbs, looking, you know, because I, they know that mom is going to get them to school. They'll, mom will get out the door on time. But as right. soon as we switch that responsibility to them, that it's their job to do that, then they start kicking up and getting more in gear.
1: Well, it's true. And, you know, and I, I, I discovered, that, well, actually, one of my friends who's also a neuropsychologist uh, probably 30 years ago did, a tri- did some training in some kind of problem-focused so- uh, psychotherapy. And they are told, don't work harder to help your clients solve their problems yes. than they do, because you'll weaken them. And you know, I, I've worked with thousands of underachievers uh, over the last 35 years. And I always ask them, if you don't turn in an assignment, who's most upset? And invariably, the kid says, my mom. Then he says, I say, who's next most upset? He says, my dad, then my teacher, then my tutor. The kid's never on the list. And what I find is that I went to a school meeting recently on on an eighth grader who's not working very hard in school. And the the resource teacher at the school, or actually the learning uh, specialist in a private school, said that it takes two resource teachers, a tutor, and the parents being on the kid constantly to get him to do his work. They're spending 95 units of energy, and the kid spends five. In my experience, Diana, is it doesn't change until the energy changes. I think many parents and some psychologists think well as the brain gets more mature the kid will will step up to the plate And I find it doesn't happen because kids manage their anxiety that way. They let their parents worry about it So they don't have to
0: Right, and that links to homework. So you (laughs) write in your book There's a whole chapter that is such a great title. I love you too much to fight with you about your homework Can you talk about your philosophy around homework because it's
1: really wonderful. So in the mid-80s, when I started my private practice, uh, I, I saw all these underachievers. And, and, and parents would say that so many said, it's like World War III after dinner time trying to get him to do his homework. You know, It takes three hours fighting with him to get him to do a half-hour homework. And I learned at that time, this is the first time, that, that, that homework doesn't seem to contribute to learning in elementary school students. And I thought, there's something wrong with this picture. What's all this fighting about? So I wrote an article, actually, that that was in in McCall's magazine on how not to fight with your kid about homework. I suggested just say to your kid, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And what do you do next? You say, I'm willing to do anything I can to help. I'm willing to be a homework consultant. I'm willing to sit with you from 630 to 730 every night. I'm willing to, to, to talk with your teacher. I'm willing to get a tutor if you need it. But I'm not willing to act like it's my job to make you do your work. Obviously, I couldn't make you do your work. All you have to do is put your head down on the table. What am I going to do? You know, Lift your head up and prop your eyes up? And, you know, I couldn't make you work. And if I act like it's my job, I'm going to weaken you because I'm going to reinforce the idea that somebody other than you is responsible for this. And, and I'll tell you, uh, when I book came out, one of my clients called me or sent me an email and said, I just told my eighth grade son, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And first he smiled, and then he hugged me, then he said, is something wrong with you, Mom?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. But, I mean, you I, even make the suggestion that sometimes if a, if a kid isn't going to complete the homework, that, that homework doesn't need to be the priority in the household. You prioritize some other things besides... Well, getting... From my point of
1: view, I mean, th- that the idea, because homework doesn't contribute very much to learning, mm-hmm. and that even 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 in middle school, and high school, it, 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 the contribution is very minimal. That yeah, it seems crazy to me for for a, a, parent, a relationship with our kids to be focused heavily on whether they do their homework. And what I've found over the last thirty five years, it's so effective if you if you simply not get into it. You simply say, I'm not. I love you too much. You're the most precious thing in the universe to me. Why would I want you to fight with me you about your homework? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, certainly, there are kids who need accommodations and regarding homework, they have too much homework that we can go to the school and saying, this isn't working for my kid. Uh, But I think from a parent point of view, that we want to think of ourselves as a consultant, a homework consultant. And I found over the years that 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 metaphor generalizes pretty nicely the other aspects of life as well.
0: One of the phrases that you encourage parents to use with their kids that I really like is, it's your call. So for example, I'll be stressing out about my child getting a book report done. And instead of telling him to do his book report, I'll say something like, you have a book report due on Monday. It's your call. When do you think you're going to work on it this weekend? And it really takes the control and management out of my hands and puts it more in, in his. Can you talk more about this phrase, it's your call?
1: Sometimes people, when they hear a little bit about our book, they think that what we're saying is basically, let like kids do what they want. Yeah. And that's, that's not what we're saying. And we, we're, again, we want to be developmentally sensitive, and we want to be able to say to kids, you aren't ready to do this. This is, uh, this is a decision that I have to make. You, you're, you aren't developmentally ready to do this. However, where where possible, in our, in our experience, it's really helpful to say to a kid, I want this to be your decision. And Starting with little kids, they know what it feels like to be cold. So we don't have to fight continuously about them, about wearing their coat. We can let them go outside a little bit and they'll figure, I need a coat. They know that what I, what I told my son when he was three is that you're the expert on you. Nobody other than you knows when you're hungry, knows when you're full. Eat when you're hungry and stop eating when you're full. And I think that even with little kids, we, we can plant this idea that nobody knows you better than you know yourself. And we feel that encouraging kids to make decisions for themselves is one of the best ways we can support their development. And our motto is encourage kids that, to make their own decision and require teenagers to make their own decisions. Because we don't want to send a kid off to college who hasn't practiced making important decisions about her own life. And but again, it's developmentally sensitive and kids, we don't want kids running the household. That's not in parents. We want parents to be assertive about their rights as well. But where we can, letting kids make decisions is a very powerful thing.
0: And there's so many ways, I think, as parents, we hijack decision-making for our kids. That's just really not necessary. So my youngest, he wears different socks all the time. You know, you know, one's long, one's up to his knee and the other one's short. I don't need to hijack that for him. He'll figure it out. He'll get the social cues, you know, by the time when it's important when he's going to a job interview and not to wear two different color socks. But if I was micromanaging that, I would be taking that call away from him. Well, that, and yeah.
1: That's a great point. And I think that part of the challenge is taking a long perspective and realizing this is an investment. You know, and this is an investment in our kids' future. By, I feel the best message you can give a teenager and maybe even an older child is that I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and learn from your mistakes. And I want you to have tons of practice doing that before, before you're legally able to make your own decision and before I send you off to college. And it just makes sense to me. And we we know that, that, that the brain develops according to how it's used. And I want kids to develop brains that are used to paying attention to what's important. What do I really want? How would this decision affect my parents or my siblings or my friends? This is the kind of thought processes that that really help kids grow up. And we we want kids to make informed decisions, meaning that they consider other people's perspectives. If if they're making decisions about something they don't know much about, we help them provide information. But ideally, we want kids tuning into their own emotions because emotions are really the key to, to decision making.
0: Let's talk a little bit about college. What are the challenges that kids are facing that that you're seeing uh, in terms of going to college? I, I see a lot of kids in my practice that are coming back after the first semester um, and needing to take the second semester off. Yeah. and how can we you know do a better job to support our kids in being yeah. successful?
1: Yeah, you know um, Ned and I had an article in the New York Times about this this very topic because i was I, I just struck me earlier this year that by mid-October, I, I knew six kids who had started college who were already home for good, and and two kids who started their sophomore year who were already home. And about about seven or eight years ago, I started lecturing on the topic of who's ready for college, which is one of the, the last chapters in our in our book. And because I saw so many kids go up to college and simply not be ready to handle it, including kids who. By by in retrospect, showed no signs of being ready to independently run their own life, and so my feeling is that what a lot of the, this this is due to kids who simply haven't had adequate practice managing their own life, including regulating their own sleep. Somebody else wakes you know, they're they're waking up they're woken up every morning in high school, or managing their use of technology. They have other people basically setting limits on technology, or managing their study time. Um, and I also think that college dormitories and college campuses are really like a parallel universe. Uh, there's a story in the book where I, I tested this, this girl who was probably 21 as a junior in college. And I'd followed her since she was in second grade. And at one point, I'm testing her. And she said to me, she's, and she's already told me that she sometimes stays up all night studying for tests and sometimes two nights in a row. But she told me while we were working that I think that the Ritalin I've been taking to treat my ADHD all these years is, is rotting my brain. And I said, why do you say that? She said, I, I feel like I'm not learning sufficiently. I take a test and I can't retrieve information as well. Um, and she said, my mom thinks it's the alcohol. And I said, well, how much do you drink? She said, well, I probably average five drinks a night, four nights a week. And I said, that would be considered alcoholic drinking as an adult. And she said, well, my best friend drinks 12 drinks a night, six nights a week. And this girl had no awareness that her friend was a full-blown alcoholic. Yeah. And the most likely explanation for her cognitive impairment wasn't the sleep deprivation. It wasn't the binge drinking, which are massively impaired. It was the, it was the riddle. And I just think that, that young people have this very crazy idea yeah. uh, about that they're, they're not very aware of of what a toxic environment college is for
0: the norms are really skewed for college students the norms around drinking where binge drinking probably is more average for a college student and they also have this phase shift in their sleep that can be really challenging where they're staying up really late but then sometimes they have morning classes and there's a regularity in their sleep patterns nutrition can be way off if they Uh, are living in the dorms and not getting into regular meals. And then there's just these compounding, competing demands on them. So a lot of demands for social connection, extracurricular activities, and then also the stressors of academics. And this is the first time that these young adults have been on their own. So it's just so challenging. And I think such an an environment where mental health issues, uh, that's why part of the reason why they're showing up and, and they're on the rise. Right.
1: I I just consulted with a a boy who's 20 um, uh, last week, who was in a house with five kids, all of whom were heavy pot smokers. One kid was doing so poorly that that he he did a treatment program, a 30-day treatment program for pot, and his roommate saw he was so much more confident and so much more successful, pot-free, that two of them are signed up for rehab programs themselves. I think that young people do not have the idea that pot is harmless that binge drinking doesn't affect their brain, that they don't need enough sleep. Yeah. And so a lot of kids who don't make it, they simply aren't academically ready. And I, yeah. a lot of kids who go off, uh, again, in retrospect, they weren't able to run their own life. And I, I think the, 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 maybe the best way we can help them is, is parents insisting, I need to see that you can run your own life for at least six months before I send you off to college. And that means managing your own schoolwork, getting enough sleep, Managing your use of technology, you're managing chem, if you're if not being overly dependent on chemicals, it means managing your scheduling your own appointments. If you take medication, take your own medication. And things that, that many kids go off to college without much experience doing.
0: Yes. So, related to that is uh, teenage drinking. And in taking this philosophy of managing your own chemicals, It's really challenging, I think, as a parent, and I work with parents whose kids are starting to drink at 17, maybe 18. And on the one hand, parents may allow their children to experiment with alcohol because they want them to try it out, I guess, in a home environment where they're safe. But on the other hand, this is seriously damaging to teenage brains, and it's illegal. So what is your philosophy around teenage drinking?
1: Right. So my angle on this is, is that I, I, kids, um, and I, and I, want, I want to tell kids, and I want just to know. I mean, I, I, what I say to kids when I, when I talk with kids about this is that obviously no, nobody can stop you from drinking. You know, and, and I think it helps kids actually knowing that I'm not going to spend 90 units of energy trying to prevent you from drinking. I want you to know, though, that if you, if you give a, a dose of alcohol to an adolescent rat, it, it creates twice the number of receptors in the brain that it does in an adult brain that which is one of the ways you get addicted that that addiction the, most people become addict, addicted to stuff with a, with a less than fully developed brain and so a, alcohol and other chemicals have such a powerful effect in the brain that but my, my my vote would be for you to not drink and i think from a parent point of view it's illegal if parents allow knowingly allow kids to drink and they get in trouble. Kids in comparison go to jail. And so I, I don't think it, it, it's the, the right message is drink at home or I, I want you to have practice under my supervision because th- th- that I think assumes the message of the kid is you couldn't possibly manage your life without drinking. So I think it's a dual message, Diane. And I, I, I think my vote is you not to drink. If you do, I want you to know that if, if you're someplace in a party, I'll come pick you up, call an Uber. I don't want you to drive drunk. We talk about managing it safely. And also, if, if I suspect that, you have, that you're dependent on drugs or alcohol, that I'm, I'm going to look into treatment programs. So I, I think it's a dual message. I and mean, it's the same way with sex. I mean, you say, that it, 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 I, ideally, you don't have sex too early. But if you do, use protection. I think it's the same kind of dual message.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's providing the education. It's very much like motivational interviewing. Exactly. Where, where you know you're providing the the information and in, in not a judgmental way, but just so this is this is the reality, and it, it is it is your choice. But but at the same time, if you if you make that choice, there's going to be you know these are the types of consequences that you'll be facing. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. Right. And I, I think that uh, that the techniques for motivational interviewing are very relevant to to what what we're trying to do in our book, which is help kids figure out what works for them. What kind of life do they want? Well, uh, one of my friends just went to visit her grand uh, her grandson, who's four, and to, to get to get uh, the child to brush his teeth, his parents, one of them restrains the kid, the other one <laughs> you know, puts a, uh, opens the lips and tries to brush the teeth, and the, the grandmother, just having read my read Ned's in my book, said, "I was channeling your book." I said to my grandson, "I said, can I tell you a little bit why why people brush their teeth?" It's because there's this bacteria that they, they invade your teeth and want to make little holes in them. And you've got to fight against it. So that's what, that's, that's what brushing your teeth does. And so the kid brushes his teeth and he asks his dad to help him find any places that he missed once he simply understood. And I think that, that helping understand that what's in kids' best interest and letting them know that I, I think one of the most protective things we can do for kids, especially adolescents, is say, I can't protect you from this stuff. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not going to try to monitor you constantly. Uh, obviously, if I try to, you know, I'm not going to hire a private investigator. I'm going to trust that you can figure this out. And if I see that you're really in danger, I'm. I'm, I'm going to step in. But I'm going to try. I, I want you
0: to figure it out. Probably uh, one of the biggest conundrums and questions that I think parents have right now is around technology, because we're in uncharted territory here. And this is everything from, you know, the two year old in the shopping cart with the iPad to your 19 year old that doesn't leave their room for (laughs) days on end, right? So what is your approach with technology? Why, you know, why how can we manage this better as parents and supporting our kids to be healthy users?
1: I mean, I I think that my experience is that people are becoming more aware that all the technology we're using is designed by really smart people to make it be addictive. And what, what we say to the kids now is you need super part, you need superpowers to manage technology because there's really smart people that are trying to get you not to be able to stop. And so my, my feeling about it is that, that we want to postpone kids using technology, basically, certainly ideally until they're five or six in my opinion, because mammals play. And, and all mammals play. And and kids, the, the human play has always been rough and tumble play and dramatic play. And that's in some ways, that's, that's how they process feelings. That's how they learn to be adults. And what's happened now over the last 20, 30 years is that kids' playtime is often in structured activities like soccer sub, sub, from the time that they're two you know, or in front of a screen. And so I, I think that from a developmental point of view, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of studies that demonstrate how important playing is for young children, dramatic playing, making up their own games. And there's no evidence that, that kids do better with early exposure to technology. So I, I think the first thing I'll say, Diane, is, is that we want to postpone. When we do introduce technology to kids, I think we want to, we want to study. it. We want to know what we're giving them. And We want to let them know that using it is contingent on appropriate use, meaning not with kids in video games, not freaking out uh, when, when it's uh, regarding agreed upon limits. And if they freak out, then we, we, they don't play for a day. and Then we give them another chance, always another chance to try it out. But I think that as they get older, in my opinion, it, it shifts to, because as kids get older, they're more technologically savvy than their parents are it becomes harder and harder to stay on top of it to say to this kind of motivational interviewing, collaborative problem solving. And, and, you I, I want to, I want you to figure this out. I want to help you figure out your managing your own technology. I mean, and also I think so, we, we recommend that make this a family issue. I mean, I so I know so many adults who are overwhelmed by by the use of technology. And, and I think that, who are on their phone constantly, or that they can't—they they, they, can't—they have—they're sleeping with their their phone in their room, and we want to model appropriate use of technology. And I, we think having family meetings about how can we use technology in a healthy way as a family is a good idea.
0: I also think parent to parent support—that we can support each other as parents in making some agreements around because I think the social component of is really hard. If everyone else is getting a phone in fifth grade and my kid isn't getting a phone in fifth grade, it, it's hard, you know, it's hard. How is he gonna be part of that community? And so finding a community of parents that have similar values around technology so that we can support each other and say, okay, let's, you know, can we hold off a little bit longer uh, to, to give them that, yeah.
1: I think that's a great idea. And in, in the same way that I think that um, dealing with stress related problems requires stress reduction teams that include students yeah. and teachers, and administrators and parents. you know that that we think about how do we solve this problem. we need kids we we need teams including kids because often kids have the best solutions to these kind of problems and but I, I think that, um, that that your point about parent support is huge because feeling like we're that, that if other kids are exposed to technology, we always worry that might, somehow Mike's kid's going to fall behind, mm-hmm. and it, it's not true. But it's easier to remember it's not true if other people are are thinking the same way.
0: Right. In looking at our own phone use as parents, everything that we're doing as a parent, our child is going to model. So yeah. if we're you know if we're sitting there talking to our kid and looking at our phone while we're talking to our kid, I envision that. 10 years down the road and my kid is, you know, 16 doing that to me and I'm not going to like it. (laughs) So, yeah, we even uh, when we just remodeled our kitchen, we put a drawer in our kitchen that has uh, USB ports at the back of it so that we can plug in all of our stuff and close it in the kitchen at night or even just during the day, go and plug it in. So it has a home where it's not visible. So we're not always checking it. All the time, but just creating some strategies, kind of looking ahead of what we're going to want our kids to do in the future when they do have um, their own phones and iPads and things like that.
1: Yeah. That's brilliant. That's yeah. brilliant. Uh, my my co-author Ned, who's is, who's is this S, uh, this uh, test prep genius, g- uh, basically buys he buys an alarm clock every week for for one of his students because they all say, "Well, I need my phone to for, I use his alarm clock. And and he, because he's so he's so skilled at getting kids to perform better, they buy it from him and they put they they leave their phone in the in the kitchen or in a charging drawer someplace and, and use a an old-fashioned alarm clock to wake themselves
0: up. Yeah, it's it, it works well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about stress because our kids are stressed out more than more than ever, and you have some suggestions around how to help our kids feel. One is giving them more sense of control, but some other suggestions as well for stress in kids.
1: Yeah. So I, I started studying in 1998 what stress does to the, the brain, you know, and, and it's not pretty, you know, and, and in the short run, when, when kids are stressed, it, it, it affects their ability to learn, the ability to pay attention, their ability to profit from uh, their education, and also that, that being stressed a lot leads to anxiety disorders. And I think especially if they're tired a lot. My my formula for getting depressed is is being too tired and too stressed for too long. And the concern is that if kids, especially as adolescents, we say that that they're sculpting their adult brains. And we don't want kids to be chronically in a state of high stress, high fatigue, because it changes the brain in a way that makes them more vulnerable to to having anxiety problems and depression problems as they get older. And so part of what we recommend is certainly that this is fostering the sense of control through decision making, not trying to force kids. Uh, we, we, there's a chapter in our book, Diana, called, uh, called A Non-Anxious Presence. And the idea is that stress is contagious. And one of the best things we can do for our kids is to manage our own anxiety. There, there's a lot of research that suggests that, that if parents manage their own anxiety, that it helps kids, kids are less anxious, they're less likely to develop an anxiety disorder. And so we, we have in this chapter, we talk about various things that parents can do to be less anxious about their kids. And, um, and I think that if our kids are anxious, it makes us anxious. you know our, our brain picks us up too. Uh, but I, I think that uh, that there's many ways that we can help, including taking a long view. And all of our fear about our kids as parents, it's about the future. It's about the idea that somehow if they're going through a hard patch, they're going to get stuck in this place and not get get better. And my experience over the last 40 years of working with kids is is that that's not true, that that it rarely happens that a kid gets stuck in some place and doesn't get better. And they kind of go, go through stuff and then they get out of it. And and I think that, that taking a long view is, is important. We recommend placing an emphasis on just enjoying kids. And I think that just enjoying them as they are. And I think that when I used to do therapy with families, we'd set our highest goal is simply enjoying the kid, and then we work backward. You know, maybe that that marital stress keeps you from enjoying your kid, or maybe it's some behavioral thing we have to work on. But and and also. The last thing I'll say is that we have a chapter called, a couple chapters on what we call radical downtime. And certainly one of the most important ways to help with, with stress is to get more sleep. And we have a chapter on uh, this radical downtime, which we consider uh, daydreaming or mind wandering and meditation. Uh, activities where you appear to be doing nothing that are really restoring and, de- and, and de-stressing your brain.
0: I love that you wrote about daydreaming. That was so helpful to me because my oldest is a big daydreamer and he just sort of whistles and is off in his own, he's a big whistler off in his own head. And my husband, and I'll get really frustrated at him because we'll want him to do something, you know, rather than just kind of whistle and be in his head. And when you gave that permission slip around actually his brain is, work when he's daydreaming, there's really important things that are happening. His brain is restoring itself and resting. It really changed our whole approach with him. So I, I love that. Oh. Our, our kids need to daydream. Well, yes.
1: you know, there's, there's this whole, we talk about in the book, there's this whole network in the brain called the default mode network that only activates when you aren't focused on a task. And what we want is the ability in the brain to toggle back and, back and forth very efficiently between being focused and, and basically daydreaming, And I think that, that there's concern that because kids are, are so technologically plugged in 24-7, there's not enough time in their day just to reflect on themselves, to be in their own head, because that's, it's really, that's how they develop a sense of identity is through t- time to reflect on themselves. And that's how they develop empathy for other people. You need that time of, of reflection. There's all this evidence that daydreaming contributes to creativity, problem solving. Kids need time to be in their own head.
0: Yeah. And all this scheduling that we're doing and the technology, it's stealing away from that play, daydreaming, creative work. It's really fun to see, you know, children get into a place where they just move from maybe I don't know what to do mom I'm bored and you let them sit with that a little bit longer and they just they create something out of it and and, it, so, and, it, and it's it's you know that's it's really important to be able to have the experience of boredom and then move into creativity because I think as adults we need that skill we need to get to a writer's block and then be able to move into creativity from it
1: yeah. that, that, that's a fantastic point and uh, it, people are saying that that 30 years ago, it took kids half an hour to become bored. Now they become bored in 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. And I, one of my friends' mother used to say when she complained about being bored, said, what do you want, a brass band? Go <laughs> against the wall. <laughs> Not advice that I give today. But we certainly uh, kids can tolerate boredom. We want them to, to, to tolerate it. Some psychologists think the most important outcome of, of childhood is being Uh, Is being able to tolerate solitude and uh, be by yourself. And I think kids need some time to do that.
0: So you're a parent yourself. You have some grown children. When you look back on your, your own parenting, are there things that you feel really good that you've done or maybe some things that you would have done differently?
1: Well, it's, it's, I'm a little embarrassed to say this. Uh, I mean, I've thought, I've thought about this question. Uh, but <laughs> my, my kids are incredible. I, mean, they, I have a 37-year-old daughter and a 33-year-old son. And they're very different. But they're, 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 they're wonderful human beings. They're, they're both successful. And, um, and, and I, just, I loved raising them. And I've, I feel completely fortunate that I knew the stuff that's in my book. That that that's I knew that stuff when I was most of it at least when I was raising my kids, and I knew, for example, that grades in school are not very predictive of success in life. So I I just I told my kids I I cared much more about their self development than I cared about their grades, and I knew that. And I wrote that article about being a consultant in 1986 when my daughter was five and my son was one. I mean, and so I just kind of walked that walk, and it was easy. And, I, and, and I, I didn't have the world's hardest kids. I mean, I, I see, I, I work with really families that have really hard kids. My kids are relatively easy. Uh, but uh, when I, I think it's just how wonderful they are. I don't have any regrets. And I, I, feel, I feel so helpful. And I, I, people would tell me stuff like this. This guy said to me, I don't remember who it was, but it was a man who said, what I love about raising teenagers is that when they come home from school, you get to see who they 're deciding to be, and I just love that perspective that, that it 's not my job to make them turn out a certain way i get to see I get to support who they want to be, and having that perspective made it really easy for me to to, to, to raise kids I, I will say that, that that in terms of one thing I, I could have done better um, there there 's a, a comedian on, on uh, many years ago in 1968 ran for president and he was on the mothers brothers uh, TV show. And he'd do these little editorials, and one of them, he, he, he said, "It's time we stop whispering about sex." <laughs> I, I think I probably could have done a better job about talking when my kids were little about talking about sex, and uh, but that, that's the only thing that I can think about that if I did it over again, I, I would do it differently. In part because yeah. it turned out so great. I, mean, what's yeah. the, I told my kids that the, uh, the, what I cared about was them developing themselves as, as a person, and, my, and that I didn't care about their grades very much. And I didn't look at the report cards usually. Uh, I, I, I went to their, their, their parent-teacher meetings. I, they wanted my help with stuff, schoolwork. I helped them. It, my daughter, who was always a really good student, got a PhD in economics, working with a Nobel Prize winner uh, at age 26 at the University of Chicago, even though she, she was always in bed by 10, 30 in high school, didn't have any academic pressure, I offered 100 bucks for a C. And my son, to whom school didn't come easily. You know, he, he was not a particularly good student, and I, I think that he surpassed everybody's expectations when he got a PhD in psychology at age 30.
0: Well, that sounds wonderful. They're really lucky to have you as a dad. It helps me with the non-anxious you know, presence of just to be able to let go and let my kids be who they are. And, and I also want them just to enjoy their childhood. It's so magical. And so I just want them to experience that magical time and, and not have it be marred by stress and anxiety.
1: You know, if you just look at... The, the mental health situation in elite schools, all, all the schools that did that, that these parents aspire to have their kids in, they're just off the charts. Even three, even four years ago, 50% of students at Yale sought mental health services and 30% of those had serious suicidal ideation. That was four years. Ago. I mean, and, and, and so the idea that somehow the most important outcome of our kids' childhood is getting into elite college is just so utterly ridiculous. Yeah. when we lecture, Ned often closes by saying that if we, if we did this, if we take this approach ourselves, it can feel like unilateral disarmament. And what we want is enough people, as you were saying, the social support. You know, be thinking and with actually thinking about kind of a contract or something that we can we can um, that parents can can. Can endures saying that I'm not going to make myself crazy. I'm not going to make my kids crazy, <laughs> you know. And I'm not going to I'm not going to be overly. Concerned. I'm not going to make my kids crazy and make other parents crazy. Uh, that if we support each other and just remembering what we want is a healthy brain for our kids. Yeah. It was and that. It just makes it a lot easier.
0: Yeah. It does absolutely. <music> Ned and I think
1: about this is that what we're just we're just trying to make peace with reality, you know. And the reality is that that valedictorians aren't more successful than other people by the time that they're 25, and that grades don't predict success for, very well. That where you go to college doesn't seem to make very much difference in terms of how successful or how much money you are, how happy you are, and that we that the reality is that kids who sleep better, who sleep more. Accomplish more than kids who are are overscheduled and don't sleep as much. And I think that what what you're doing is really We're we're trying to 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 appear in a way that's grounded in reality the reality of our human physiology With the reality of of what it takes to be successful in this world And I what we say what we say in our education chapter is we'd much rather if we are teachers we'd much rather teach kids for 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 four hours who would slept for eight hours then sleep for, that teach them for eight hours and sleep for four. Just, right. like we have a brain a focus on what develops a healthy brain. That's, the, that's our ultimate goal is raising kids who have healthy brains. And I think that your instincts sound to me at least <laughs> exactly right.
0: And that a parent's job, you write, is to love your children. That's, your, that's the job that you as a parent can do better than anyone else. Th- that's, I love that. Yeah. That's
1: the main thing that that is communicating love and affection to your kid. That's the number one thing.
0: Yeah. Not to teach him, not to coach him, not to shape him, but to love him. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank yeah. you. Well, it's an honor and a delight to have you on, and I really encourage uh, folks that are listening to pick up your book, The Self-Driven Child. We'll put links into it uh, on the website. We'll also put a link to your, your group and some of your other talks. Uh, the NPR show that we heard was fantastic and your New York Times article, and uh, hopefully people can take all these messages and uh, really influence their own parenting and, and their work with uh, their clients as well. So thank you. Great. Great. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on
2: iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on
0: our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.